Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome into the seventh edition of the Five Reasons Podcast. I'm Ethan Skolnick. I'm here with Chris Whittingham. We used to do a radio show together. Now we churn out two or three of these podcasts per week. Be sure to subscribe if you like what you're hearing here. Recently, we have tackled the Miami Dolphins a couple of times. We're going to jump back into something that was a subject of our first podcast, the Miami Heat. And what we're going to tackle today, Chris, is whether or not uh, this offense that they have, which struggled again on the road against Cleveland, has struggled mightily over the last five games, uh, is something that could be improved or if not something that could be overcome. And we're going to go through some of the reasons that the Miami Heat have struggled so much offensively. So I will let you start, Chris, with your first reason. I actually thought we were going to do the five reasons why LeBron is going to Golden State. Did, did, we, did we scrap these plans? <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, Rich Paul throwing that out for a little bit of leverage uh, this I, morning. That, yeah. how, I mean, how much is Mav Carter written all over that leak? Well, no, it, it's rich. It's rich. Oh, it's rich? Uh, okay. I, I, oh, yeah. I, I can right. tell you from, from being up there for that first year LeBron went back to Cleveland that uh, there was another leak that year. Uh, similar circumstances, same reporter who I like and uh, quite a bit, actually. But it, it was pretty clear where it came from, and and that uh, that first year when LeBron was back in Cleveland, it it, was, it concerned David Blatt and uh, the fact that LeBron could pick up and leave after the season uh, if he wasn't happy with the situation here. So to me, this uh, again struck me as a leverage play about a week before. Uh, the trade deadline, so it's pretty much uh, you know make a move. I, I love I love people though. Could go to your, your biggest rival. I love people though trying to say, oh, this story is BS. Oh, this story. No, this is very clearly a plant. And and if you don't believe that, then you you just you don't know LeBron James. You don't know the history of what's happened, and uh, and and you do. So you know that anyone trying to tell you the otherwise is talking nonsense. But let's get back to the uh, to the subject at hand. So I, I feel like. Uh, there, there is some hand-wringing going on after what happened in Cleveland last night. And I, I sort of took the opportunity with what happened to the Heat both in that game against Cleveland and what happened against Sacramento last week when they lost at home to basically say, all right, wh- where are the Heat offensively in the specter of the league? And over the last seven games, they've been the worst offense in the league. I think their offensive rating is something like 92 which would be eight points worse than the current worst offense in the league, which is uh, the Sacramento Kings. And when you look at the fact that they played these terrible defenses in the last week, Sacramento was bottom of the league. By virtue of playing Miami, they climbed out of that spot. Last night, Cleveland did the same thing. By virtue of what they did to Miami, they went from 30th to 28th in the league in defense off of one performance. And for that to happen 50 games into a season basically indicates that was a really bad performance. So I really do think it's worth digging into What's going on with this Heat offense? And and you, you mentioned sort of teeing up that first reason. I think the primary reason, number one, I think that this sort of gets back to why I think the last kind of... So we're at you know 29 and 22, following 30 and 11. So they're 59 and 33 in their last however many games, uh, 92 games. And that's you know the pace of a team that's going to compete to win a conference and doing it in a league that is so star driven that if you don't have one of those players you're going to struggle and you see however many teams struggling with rosters similar to Miami you ask yourself well how is this happening and right now for the heat it's happening on defense but when you look at why they struggle for long stretches for me the number one reason is that there is nothing that comes easy, whether it's one player who can carry them for long stretches or you look at where they rank in certain statistics, right? So they're near the bottom of the league in terms of possessions that end in turnovers. Uh, they're in the bottom third in free throw percentage. They're in the bottom third in pace. They're in the bottom third in offensive rebounding percentage. Anything that would lead to an easy basket is something that the Heat just don't do. 
Yeah, and I go through it uh, actually, and they're worse than bottom third in some of those categories. And in pace, yeah. they're, they're third from the bottom. They're 28th in the league. Um, and and you mentioned offensive rebounding percentage, uh, 24th turnover percentage. The other thing is not just getting easy baskets with offensive rebounds um, that way, but but also giving up the ball quite a bit. You know, 27th in the league in turnover percentage. So you're cutting down on your number of possessions when you're already playing at a slower pace than a lot of the other teams in the NBA. So you're not making the most of the possessions that you have. Um, and again, you take a look at the offensive rating here, and you mentioned uh, 26 in the league right now at 102.8. If you look at the rest of the bottom 10, you look at the other teams that are in that mix right now, the only one that has more than 19 wins at this stage is Detroit, and they're 21st in offensive rating. The 22nd through 30th teams in offensive rating are Dallas, 16 and 36, Atlanta, 15 and 36, Memphis, 18 and 32, Brooklyn, 18 and 33, or 19 and 33 coming into tonight, Phoenix, 18 and 34, the Lakers, 19 and 31, the Bulls, 18 and 33, and the Kings, 16 and 34. These are the teams that are going to be lined up if they have their own pick uh, to get the most lottery balls this season. And then you have the Heat in that mix at 29 and 22, 26th overall. So clearly, um, and obviously this plays into their net rating problem where they have a minus net rating over the course of the year, minus one, um, even though they've been a very good defensive team. So clearly there's an offensive problem. uh, And we go to, again, this first reason, which is not having a a star who can carry them for long stretches. And congratulations to Goran Dragic for making his first all-star game. You could argue that should have happened uh, maybe, you know, three years ago when he was in Phoenix as well. Um, but the reality is, you know, even Dragic is not a player who's going to carry you, uh, you know, through, you know, an entire half. Uh, they don't have a guy who can do, obviously, what a James Harden can do, uh, giving you a 60-point triple-double. Uh, but even, you know, what the second star in Portland can do, C.J. McCollum, uh, you know, giving you a 50-point game or something close to that. The Heat don't have that kind of player. And as a result of that, they don't have somebody who, when the offensive system has broken down to a certain degree, they don't have somebody who can just go get them a basket possession after possession, after possession based on sheer talent and will they, they, that guy just does not exist on the roster. And without having that player, um, you know, you, again, you take a look at the teams that are best in the league in offensive rating. A lot of it does have to do with system um, and overall depth of talent. But in a lot of cases, it has to do with having that one elite guy or two elite guys on the team. And the Heat just don't have that. And I think it's it's even if they weren't necessary, because I think, for example, a healthy Dion Waiters or the Dion Waiters we saw last year would be helping this situation a great deal because I think we, we sort of term it as stars, right? The only team to me that you look in sort of the top of the offensive standings and you don't and you can't sort of say, well, that one's easy to figure out is the Indiana Pacers. They're sixth in the league in offensive rating. And I just look at their team and I go, that doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, Oladipo has been fantastic, right? He's been scoring. Uh, he's at 24 points a game. Uh, Darren Collison is their assist leader. That I don't understand. But the rest of it, Golden State, Houston, uh, makes sense. Minnesota has three guys you can lean on. And Jimmy Butler, uh, in Jeff Teague even. So it's four, actually, with Wiggins and Towns. Uh, Toronto has Lowry and DeRozan. Cleveland is fairly obvious. Uh, the New Orleans Pelicans, when they had uh, Boogie and Anthony Davis healthy. Those are top offensive players and creators for others. Uh, Milwaukee makes sense with Giannis. Oklahoma City has three offensive players that are really good, and Denver is just so loaded with shooting that they're always going to kind of be in that territory. So those are the top teams on offense, and I think what Miami has, even if it's not necessarily guys who are superstars or guys who are superstar talents, they just don't have a lot of playmakers, offensive, offensively creative players. Even Goran Dragic, who you would consider to be the best of that, of, of the, what the Heat have to offer in this regard, uh, is a very particular kind of player. He's a, he's a driver, he's a finisher at the rim, and occasionally he will set up others, but I don't think he's a, he's a multifaceted offensive playmaker. And if I were to ask you who's kind of second in the group of offensive creators for Miami, it's either, it, it, it's one of three guys. It's Kelly Olynyk, oddly enough. Right. It's Justice Winslow, or it's James Johnson. Now I don't think James Johnson has done nearly the job uh, of of that kind of dynamism that he showed off last year, and I think his drop off in performance is showing in this regard that we're talking about. Uh, Winslow, I think, you know, isn't asked to do it often enough, and I think Kelly Olynyk has been one of the Heat's kind of breakout players this year. And I think someone that the Heat fans went from wait, we got the 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 tall stiff from Boston. 
who they didn't want anymore. What, I don't understand that. To oh, I get it. Like he's what Josh McRoberts was supposed to mm-hmm. be when the Heat signed him, and that signing makes sense now. But I just think that they don't have secondary and tertiary playmakers to, as you said, when possessions break down, they go and figure out ways to score. Right, and, and, and everything I, is hard work. Everything is a really good, well worked set, and they need to execute at the highest level to get decent shots. Well, and and you take a look at you know where they've gone with their offense. You know, a lot of it is dribble handoffs, um, and a lot of it is uh, floppy sets for Wayne Ellington to get him open. I mean, Wayne Ellington is now a featured player in this offense, and and he's been a revelation in his two years in Miami. But again, don't think of him as a go-to player. And, and the other thing about it is that the Heat don't have you know you mentioned where they are in free throws. You know, they don't have that guy who you know is going to get to the line. Um, and and their primary ball ball handlers are not those type of players where they're going to get all those opportunities uh, at the free throw line. And so, you know, that plays into it, too, because obviously if you have a guy like DeRozan uh, in Toronto or you have a Harden in, in Houston and, and the, you know, those teams, you know, Toronto fourth, Houston second in offensive rating, you, know, you have players who are going to get to the line as much as that. That's, you know, that's three points with the clock stopped and, and the Heat don't have that type of guy. So that, that certainly plays into it. So, you know, I think it gets into what we talked about in another pod. I mean, it just, as you mentioned, it's just harder work doing what they're doing without a true superstar. And that's why Eric Spolstra has earned so much uh, praise for what, what's happened here and why I don't really think you could pin their offensive struggles on him per se. I, you know, I, I, you know, I know there was criticism of Eric, you know, early during the big three era, you know, particularly that first year, you know, of not really sort of unlocking that team. It kind of happened in the second year. And then when they moved LeBron more to the four and, and got more, you know, went to more of a pace and space type game with this roster. I don't know that there, that there's anything that jumps out at you that says Eric should be doing this to get them uh, more opportunities offensively. Now, with that being said, the performance in Cleveland, although we know how horrible Cleveland is defensively, a lot of that, Chris, and you know, I, I rewatched the game. They had open looks in that game. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they just but they didn't. did also turn the ball over twenty times. They they did, and that that's one of the factors here. But but they didn't. Uh, you know, and they had a chance to win it at the end, but uh, you know, they they just didn't they didn't make some of the open looks. So sometimes it just comes down to that. But obviously, there's a large enough sample size now to say, you know, this is just not a very good offensive team, and it, it's not an offensive team that's trending in the right direction. I want I want to get to the second reason here. On, can I can I very quickly they, interject yeah. before you get to that? With uh, mm-hmm. so you mentioned the free throw thing, I I didn't even consider that to be honest. Uh, they don't have guys that get to the line. So Goran Dragic is their leader at three point eight free throw attempts per game, uh, which isn't very high. As a matter of fact, it's fiftieth most in the league, and that's Miami's highest free throw getter. When you compare his three point eight to top of the league, not surprising is James Harden averaging mm-hmm. a little over ten free throws a game. Those are easy right. ones that the Heat just don't get. Yeah, they don't get them, and that's as a result of not having a player with that kind of reputation. And a lot of it is reputation. And uh, you know, we saw it. You know, even when the Heat had Dwayne, you know, Dwayne's free throw numbers over the years, uh, you know, came down. Where the Heat have really not been a high volume free throw team, you know, really since sort of the peak of the Big Three era. I mean, that's been a big problem in terms of getting their offense going. And again, it has to it plays into not having a, a, a true superstar. The second reason, uh, you know, I think that they've had an issue here, and I don't want to pin too much on him because he, he tends to be uh, the one that's beaten on the most by the fan base and by the media. But, you know, they were hoping, or at least Pat Riley was talking this offseason about how his plan was for Hassan Whiteside to be a go-to guy that they ran the offense through. And, and that, you know, and, and to have that kind of post presence, so we can talk about how the game has changed and teams are not as reliant on that and that maybe Riley is a little bit sort of back in the past in that way of thinking that Hassan was going to average, what was it, he said something like 25, 15, and 6 or something along those lines. Uh, we, 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 don't see, we don't see bigs do that, you know, you know, at least not in a traditional way in the modern NBA. But, you know, if, if they were using Hassan more in that capacity and he had kind of stepped up to that challenge, I do think that, you know, their offense would be better. But they, since they haven't really, you know, used Hassan the same way from game to game and, you know, his post numbers, you know, if you just take a look at it on a per possession basis, have not really improved. Um, you know, they just they don't have that option for just an easy basket 
on the inside. And, and I think, again, that plays into why they need to run more elaborate sets to get guys open um, and to, you know, to play more of the driving kick game, to play the dribble handoff game, to, to do some of the things that we've seen Olenek do and some of the some of the passing that's come from, you know, from Bam when he's come into the game. Um, they just they haven't progressed in in that way with Hassan in the way that I think would have taken this offense maybe to another level this year. It just hasn't happened. I'm uh, I'm kind of uh, surprised that, uh, th- frankly, his numbers aren't worse. So when you look at uh, the, the guys in the NBA who have at least 100 post-ups in the NBA, uh, Hassan Whiteside is kind of middle in the pack, uh, 0.91 points per possession, which still mm-hmm. isn't great. Uh, but it does tell you why the league has moved away from the post-up is because it hasn't. It doesn't necessarily lead to uh, sort of that efficient offense. I remember uh, Mike D'Antoni's brother once gave quotes about because uh, he was asked, "How come you don't go and get an easy bucket in the post?" And he sort of ran through on average what teams what teams you know average per possession when they do different things. So the corner three is the best and the post up is the worst. And so you teams more and more you see teams more and more and more moving away from it. But you look at the guys who are best at it, Embiid, Towns, Davis, Love, and Jefferson, a lot of what they have in common is there's this more skill there. You just see guys mm-hmm. that, that can handle the ball, frankly, in the post. And I think you see when Hassan draws double teams, he struggles to pass out of them. Uh, he, Hassan has cut down on the turnovers a little bit, so at least that's uh, a, a positive from that point of view. But it's still not, as you said, a go-to kind of play. I don't, I don't, know, I don't even know what the Heat... In in a go to situation, would run. I you saw last night towards the end of the game when Kelly Olynyk was getting the ball in the post, and it was kind of him. Now he wasn't necessarily running a post up, but he got the ball and was then allowed to make the decision. I think right now that's the Heat's best look offensively because he's such a smart player with the ball in his hands, and there's a reason why he's closing and Hassan Whiteside isn't. And so when you look at what the Heat can do offensively, uh, yes, I didn't really like Dion Waiters' hero ball. But that's just sort of what the league does at the end of games. And the, the Heat don't have anyone who could even do that. So it just, there is no pet play. There is no go-to thing that the Heat can do on offense to engineer something when they need a bucket. And that really puts a lot of stress. Like, to me, if, if the Heat were looking into the trade market, and I'd be curious to see if they would even think about doing something like this, uh, would you give up something to get, for example, Lou Williams from the Clippers? Because mm-hmm. the Clippers right now are tanking and Lou Williams is having a career year. Uh, who are the kinds of players that would help? It's creators, guys who can, who can go and do that. And this season, Lou Williams has been that kind of player. But the problem for getting a guy like Lou Williams is most of these teams that have that kind of player who are looking to dump that kind of player are looking for a first-round pick in exchange. Right. And and so you take a look at Lou Williams, Tyreek Evans would be the other one uh, with Memphis. And, and they've, now, sh- they've now shut him down. Yeah, I'm not... I'm not as big a fan either, and and you know there's been a lot of experiments with Tyreek Evans that haven't worked. Are you going to play him at the point? You're going to play him at the two? Um, you know, obviously he's had he's had a good year and an efficient year for him in Memphis, but uh, Lou Williams would be my preference over Tyreek Evans. But again, you need a first round pick to be able to make that move, and and the Heat just aren't in position after the Dragic trade to be able to trade uh, for that kind of player. And then you know again you look at bigs as we mentioned. There aren't that many guys in the NBA uh, who are great sort of post-up players at this stage, and 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 you know a lot of them wouldn't fit the Heat system anyway. So you know uh, this is going to get back to that same question, which is you know do you try to move Hassan Whiteside if if you know you're only playing him 25 minutes a night and he's not giving you uh, sort of that you know rise in production that you hoped for before this season and and that's again the decision that Pat Riley's going to have to make and whether a team whether it's Milwaukee or someone else is interested in him but but again not you know I don't know that I ever expected Hassan to be a 20 point scorer on a consistent basis in the NBA um you know and, and certainly when he first broke in the league I didn't expect it but even when he had uh you know sort of that revelatory first you know season and a half with the heat I wasn't anticipating he was going to make a jump to 20 points a game but clearly Pat Riley was speaking about that and and because that hasn't happened, again, it's put a burden on some of these other players to sort of do more offensively than maybe they would be typically capable of. And for Eric Spolscher to be creative in terms of getting them those opportunities. And I think in that sense, they've kind of hit a wall a little bit. And I think that sort of dovetails into our reason number three, which is that Eric Spolstra has really tried to find the combination of players that works 
and I think he struggled to do so. You see the starting lineup change a lot. Now, some of that has to do with injury, and, and let's be fair to the situation. The Heat have not had their full complement of players the entire season and won't, frankly, because of the Deion Waiters uh, season-ending surgery and, and some of the other things that have happened from an injury point of view. It, it hasn't allowed Miami to, to take advantage of that continuity to kick on, but you see too many teams around the NBA struggling with injuries to really have sympathy for any team. Uh, you know, ha- having guys out. It's just going to happen. It's a fact of life in sports. You're not going to have your full complement of players all the time. And so uh, the Heat have been in search of what is their best lineup? What is their best way to attack from an offensive point of view? Now, maybe at this point, you just kind of live up to this identity. You become one of the ugliest teams in basketball from a stylistic point of view and attack from a from a defensive side of things. You put, you know, your most athletic guys and you try and defend, which is the only reason why the Heat were in the game against Cleveland last night, is maybe you just search out these defensive lineups that, that can that can sort of switch on all five positions and make life miserable for the other team and try and do enough offensively. But I, I still think that finding the right combination of players has been one of Eric Spolster's biggest problems. And if I were to ask you what is the Heat's best five combination of players, I think we would struggle to come up with that answer. Well, we would, and part of it is because the offensive and defensive splits on this are so different, right? So some of the Heat's better defensive players have not been their better offensive players. And and so as a result, you know, as you said, you're kind of mixing and matching based on the situation and on the opponent. And, you know, I, I do think that although Eric Spolster has tried to keep things as consistent as possible, you know, the the you know, the lineup changes and the injuries, you know, they losing waiters, although he was not efficient in any way while he was playing, but then, you know, having Tyler Johnson in and out of the lineup, trying to work Winslow back in, all of the issues that they had, you know, bringing Whiteside back in to the mix. You know, he's had to sort of, you know, you know, tinker with this, and I think he's done a really good job of doing that. But but they haven't been able to find a consistent five that you know is going to be out there when the game's on the line. I know they've been good in the clutch, but uh, but even throughout the course of the game. And so you know, it really has been on a night to night basis for the most part. We've seen that Josh Richardson, uh, you know, plays a lot of minutes for this team. He's kind of emerged as somebody that Eric trusts because he gives you something offensively at the same time as he's been an elite guy defensively this year. With Justice Winslow, the question is. Can he earn more of that trust on the offensive end so he could play more? Um, James Johnson, as you mentioned, has not been the same guy this year that he was last year. The point that Pat Riley, I, you know, according to Barry Jackson's report, you know, the Pat Riley has said to him, "Be the guy that we signed," right? And and James Johnson has not been that Which guy. Which both sounds like um, an angry fan complaint <laughs> and something that makes sense. Exactly, and and you're looking at three more years of that contract. Oof, so it, yeah. you know, if he's not going to be the way the I, guy that they signed at this point, I don't know when he's going to be that. I tweeted this last night, but I I think you look at uh, his upcoming salary structure and you see a player option for. Sixteen point uh, sixteen million dollars, even in two thousand and twenty twenty one, age thirty two for James Johnson. I don't think he's turning that down. No, I think he'll be opting into that particular contract. So, I, I mean, you take a look at, at at some of the things that they've had to deal with this year, and and you know, Olenek got off to the really really hot start from three, and and has kind of regressed a little bit closer to the mean recently. So, and and you know, Bam is you know has some skills on that end, but is still very raw and still developing in that sense. And, and Ellington has been, you know, one of the best three point shooters in the league, but you know, we know that he's mostly a specialist on that end of the floor. So uh, when you look at this and you're Eric Spolster, you're trying to find the right combinations. It's been a challenge. And, and because it's been a challenge that has certainly hurt continuity. I mean, look, they, he had Derek Jones starting some games right after they picked him up uh, after Phoenix, let him go. So uh, a lot of, you know, he likes to do that idiosyncratic thing where he tries to, Keep, the bench uh, he together. keeps the bench intact, but he actually he's gone away from that by by starting Tyler Moore at the two alongside Richardson at the three. So right, he, has, so he is uh, kind of breaking his own rules in in the search yeah, of this he's, answer. He's really- in the search of an answer offensively, I don't think he's concerned about their defense. I, I think he thinks they'll compete, you know, consistently on the defensive end, and they have guys who are just natural defenders on the team. And they're, look, they're sixth in the league in defensive rating right now, behind Boston, San Antonio, Toronto, Oklahoma City, and Philly. So they're right there. I mean, they're tied with Golden State for defensive rating. So that's a pretty good, pretty good place to be when you're, when you know, people are talking about Golden State having potentially two Defensive Player of the Year candidates in Draymond and Durant this year. So, I, you. Know, he, he's had to work really hard to find the right combinations, but again, 
it's not like it was when you go back to the Big Three era where you look at the 27-game winning streak and he rolled out the same nine-man rotation. Not only was it the same nine-man rotation, but the same order of players that would come in. Like the guys on the bench knew when they were coming in. Uh, the guys who were starting knew who the, when they were coming out and who they were going to be playing with on their, in their second and third times on the floor. Save big money at Menards. Let the fresh air in and keep the bugs out with replacement screen for your doors and windows from AdForce. It's easy to install, durable against the elements, and comes in a variety of types to suit your needs. Repair your screens today with a roll of replacement screen on sale through May 5th. And check out more great deals happening now in our weekly flyer on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Um, he just, it, that allows you to build rapport it allows you to build uh you know trust in each other and all that and with this particular team there's just been a lot of combinations like i think even when you looked at it uh, uh when you looked at some of the lineups chris they don't really have lineups that have played that many minutes together um i, I think when you look at it compared to other teams in the nba uh you know the heat would rank towards the bottom in terms of minutes for their most used lineups again because of the injuries and also because of the search for combinations right and uh, we, we were kind of looking at uh, you know th- what is the heat's most occurring lineup and some of that is injuries but some of that is just uh, Eric Spolster is tinkering he's trying to find the right combination of kind of those combo guards that they have uh, versus the uh, you know versus the the bigs that they have the the big man rotation I think has been probably the biggest thing that's been hardest to sort out but in terms of games in which a lineup has occurred so the heat have played 51 games uh, the five-man combination that has appeared the most has appeared in only 18 of those games. Mm-hmm. So the constant mixing and matching in terms of total minutes together, uh, the team uh, or the, the lineup that has occurred the most is Dragic, Whit- Richardson, Waiters. So a, a Waiters lineup is still the top lineup in terms of minutes received. Whiteside and Winslow, they have 125 minutes together through 50 games. So uh, I imagine when you start to compare that to you know teams like the Warriors and what they do with their lineups, I can't imagine that there are too many teams that, that are, are struggling at this point in the season to find a lineup. Or if they are, they're probably not near the top of their respective conference. They're, you know, they're, they're among the league's basement dwellers. So I think the, the Heat are kind of defying logic in that regard. But let's go and do a, a, a thought exercise. So if I said to you, Ethan, right now, what are the best combination of five Heat players? What would you go with? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cheat a little bit here because I, I think I saw some of this um, – on social media, but you know, I, I would say if you were just say off the top of your head, you would think uh, that it would be Dragic, Ellington, Richardson, and I would go with Olenek, mm-hmm. and then that fifth spot, I might go with Bam actually. Yep. Uh, the the one thing with that combination is that, and we saw it toward. I think I think they were playing that lineup towards the end of last night, but you see uh, teams go small against it. And at times, like, there was one possession towards the end of that game where Kelly Olenek is 1v1 on LeBron. It's like, ooh, I don't like how this looks. Right, right. <laughs> this could right. get bad. And I think I think Cleveland pretty easily scored from that possession. So uh, it, it, there are times defensively, and that's sort of uh, the other factor in all of this is uh, there are some non you know, modern NBA things that happen with this team. And the reason why they look so bad on offense is because, frankly, uh, they have – a couple of decent shooters, or the, but Wayne Ellington's one of the best in the league. So you at least have that. Goran Dragic, Josh Richardson are in the good territory, but uh, and, and Olenek is as well. But outside of that, I think you have too many lineups that have non-shooters in it. And so I, I would think, see, if it was the same James Johnson as last year, mm-hmm. you pencil him in a big, at sort of small ball four straight away, and I'd play him with Olenek because I think Olenek has to be on the floor in a best five-man group with the other three that you mentioned. But uh, I, I just think that, that the search for that kind of power forward slash fellow big to play with Olenek is a really tough search in this modern NBA game where you have to defend at the rim, but you have to stretch the floor, and you can't have too many non-shooters out there. And I think that's, the, that's been the, the, the biggest thing for Spolster to find. Yeah, and I'm going to go to that as my fourth reason, and we, we've touched on this a couple times over the course of the pod, but James Johnson's regression uh, has clearly hurt the offense. And to the point where you, know, you mentioned having non-shooters on the floor, and to a certain degree that's what James Johnson has been this year. Interestingly, Winslow, who has been accused of being the biggest non-shooter that they have, 
um, has in a relatively small sample size, you know, been superior to James Johnson as a perimeter shooter this year. And, and so there's the question of should Winslow be getting some of those minutes that James Johnson is getting? But they were really, I mean, we can talk about the contract, but they, they really were relying on James Johnson in a big way this year. I mean, this is a team that went into the season without a real backup point guard, right? I mean, they, they have Dragic, who is is a point guard, but as we've talked about, is is a guy who, you know, is is not traditional as a point guard. He's, he's not. He's, he's not. He's, he is he's, in the modern mold of point guards, though. You don't see too many uh, Magic Johnson types in the NBA that are just here to set other people up. All the best right. point guards can also score, but uh, you see them also racking up high assist totals in right. the process. And, and that's, right, and Goran's Goran's not going to end up with double digit assists on a consistent basis, and 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 that's just not the player he is um, at this sta- this stage, and we kind of know that. So thirty fourth you know, in the really league in assists per game. Right. And, and so you were really relying on on one of three guys, uh, especially when Josh Richardson moved to more of a wing spot uh, to the three spot, one of three guys to be sort of your your backup ball handler, um, your secondary ball handler when Dragic was in there and then maybe your primary ball handler at times. And that was uh, that was Tyler Johnson, uh, who now has to play the two spot because you don't have uh, Dion there. So he's not backing up Dragic as much as maybe he might have been. And then the other two guys are, are Winslow and James Johnson. You didn't have Winslow for a good portion of the season. And he's just sort of now, you know, finding his footing here a little bit. And and then, you know, and again, James Johnson, who did a lot of that for you last year, but has not looked as comfortable doing that this season. And, and I think if they were if they had the James Johnson that they had last year, um, a lot of these sets would look a little bit better than they have this season and, and would pay off, you know, more. I mean, we can talk about the one decision to sort of go the length of the floor yesterday. And I saw that the NBA uh, ruled that LeBron did foul James Johnson, but that James Johnson actually traveled, moved his pivot foot before the foul. So it wouldn't, it shouldn't have counted anyway, but, but I'm talking more so than about that one, you know, decision in one play than, than more so the, you know, just, you know, the sets that they've run and the fact that he has not really been, uh, you know, I think as dynamic of a playmaker um, and as consistent of a playmaker as he was last season. And, and they, you know, again, this is a team that, that sort of needs that because they don't have, you know, a traditional backup point. I mean, even in Cleveland, and we can talk about all of their problems, but even in Cleveland where they have a guy like LeBron who initiates so much of their offense and they have another guy in Dwayne who does initiate a lot of their offense. I mean, they have three point guards on the roster, right? I mean, all guys who've been, uh, long, long-term starters in the NBA with with Derrick Rose and Calderon and Isaiah, and they all have their own issues. But but look how many guys they're keeping on the roster to sort of start and run their offense. They've got five different guys who are capable of doing it. The Heat don't have that, and, and so they, they they couldn't really afford to have one of the guys who does a lot of their initiating, uh, you know, sort of regress this season. And and that's what's happened with James Johnson. Yeah, and I think that's probably been the biggest disappointment because in some respects, I think the the Heat and, and I think the rest of the league kind of found out, oh, James Johnson's a fit in the modern NBA. And I think it, it took him so long to find that role because the game was evolving while he was kind of toiling on the bench in Toronto. And it turns out all along the best role for him was small ball four. And it looked last year like it was going to be revelatory and that I actually, if you asked me which of those contracts last year was the one that offended you the least, I would probably have said James Johnson just because of how vital he was towards that latter half of the season when things were going so well uh, in, in making that offense flow, in making that offense work. And I just don't think you see that similar kind of impact this year. And oddly enough, the people who I trust, uh, who I trust the most to see that are the fans. Because mm-hmm. uh, the, the the fans' complaints often are founded, right? And and I, I don't I, I don't like to dismiss it because generally when you get that feeling from the fans, like oh man, I don't I don't like I don't like how this looks anymore. Like I went to a UM basketball game recently, and there's that feeling about this point guard that they have named Jaquan Newton, and you literally can be in the crowd and hear groans when he gets the ball. Now I find that the, that harsh to be on on a college player, but with James Johnson, there is that similar feeling. And when you look back last year. During that 30-11 game stretch, uh, the Heat were plus 7.5 with him on the floor, and they were plus 4.8 with him off. So they were still you know, decent enough, but he was a, a contributor in them being good last season in the work that he did. And for him to have taken a step back, it makes me wonder what, what, what's going on, whether it's injury or whether him being given the captaincy was perhaps too much of a vault forward. I, I don't know what is necessarily 
the thing that is stopping him right now from being the guy that he was last season. I'd, I'd love to know, other than maybe he just was never that good to begin with, and what we saw last year was a flash in the pan that's just never happening again. Well, yeah, and look, those last 41 games, uh, a lot of things happened that, that had never happened before, and that was certainly one of them. And, you know, you take a look at the contracts that were signed. As you mentioned, it might have been sort of, as you said, the least offensive. Uh, you know, the the one that's the only one that's worked out really uh, in any significant way is Olenek, yeah. um, that, that that's, you know, been the real Which positive. Which is the one that I was most offended you know, uh, about. <laughs> right. <laughs> at the time, it did seem a little bit. A little bit silly, but it's worked out really well. And those contracts, all you know, all three of them, if you look at waiters as well, uh, were for about the same amount of money. And uh, you know, the, the the question about James Johnson was not whether he was going to perform at a high level this year. It was the question we've raised earlier here, which is would he perform at a high level in the third and the fourth year of the deal? Um, it wasn't about whether or not he would slip back this year. I mean, I'm just looking at some of the numbers here. You know, his actual his assists per game are actually up uh, from 3.6 to 4.0 and that's in uh similar minutes he's playing he played 27 minutes last year he's playing 27 minutes this year and his turnovers are actually down from 2.3 to 2.2 so just on on paper it looks like he's been as effective in that in that regard as he was last year now some of the other numbers the three-point percentage he's kind of regressed back to his career number right i mean he was a 34 percent last year he's a 29 percent this year that that is what he shoots for his career so he's regressed back in that way, you know, a lot of the other numbers, you know, other than points per game are relatively similar. This is more of, again, an eye test thing, which is when you watch him on the floor, he just doesn't seem as consistently impactful as he was last season. And, and, and you know, the other thing that, that sort of blew it up a little bit was when he got inserted in the starting lineup at the end of last year and, you know, the very end of last year. And he was really, really good, right, for that, like, I, I can't remember if it was like a seven-day period or a 10-day period, uh, but his numbers inflated there. And so I think that there was a feeling that, okay, that there's even more there than we saw over the course of the previous 30 games or so. And, you know, when he was when he was better than, you know, than was projected. Um, and, and it's just, you know, he's, he's pretty much, you know, slid back a little bit, as we've said. So even if necessarily the assist to turnover number doesn't speak to it. Yeah, and I think uh, sort of now transitioning into that reason number five, uh, I, I call it roster redundancy, and I think James Johnson is a, a part of a group that I think there, there's too many guys that do similar things. So to me, when you're sussing out a kind of modern NBA team, uh, there are certain things that you need to balance out. So to me, rule number one don't have more than one non-shooter on the floor at a time. And that presents a large problem for Miami. And so when you have James Johnson, who I would consider a non-shooter, yeah, Justice Winslow's percentage looks good. He's at 42%, which I was floored to see. But he only takes 50, he's only taken 55 attempts this season. He, that's basically, on a, in the games that he was playing, probably like a little under two a game. But over the course of the seasons, about one a game. So he's not someone who you would consider a threat to shoot, someone who uh, other opposing defenses respect. I, I don't think that, you know, that, that number bears out him as a shooter. So you have him, you have James Johnson, you have Whiteside, you have Bam, and trying to find minutes for all of, all, all of those guys and, and, and in the right combinations, getting back to an earlier point, is difficult. Then you kind of have that kind of combo, that two-guard uh, that can do you know a lot of things but uh, you know is 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 kind of a similar skill set with Richardson and with Tyler Johnson. I think Wayne Ellington is sort of a one in his kind one of his kind kind of player and why I think he's a valuable piece on this team. And then you have just Goran Dragic as a creator and so I don't think that there's enough balance on this roster. There aren't enough kind of those 3 and D kind of players. I think for the most part in the league you either have superstar talents or you have 3 and D players with your one big man and I think uh, one of the flaws I think in the Olympic signing and as much as I like him as a player, is that you're dedicating a lot of resources to a place where you really can only play one player at a time. And the the two biggest allocation of resources that were big are bringing people back were the Heat's first round pick and their biggest free agent signing, and they both are at big man positions where you can play one at a time, maybe two, but then you're leaving yourself exposed at something, whether that's offense or defense. And when you look at Whiteside, Bam, and Kelly Olynyk, really only one of them should be on the floor at a time. And I think it's when you start to see that redundancy is where you start to see the struggles. 
Well, and I think we speak to what, the, you know, the four spot is really the sort of the spot in the NBA that has changed the most, right? Like that's a spot that used to be a Charles Oakley type, a, uh, you know, that, that type of player down there, you know, a rugged rebounder. That's what you're looking for. And, and we've seen over the years that that's transitioned more to a stretch four type player. And, and I think that's what the Heat envision for that, that spot, particularly playing next to Whiteside. But, you know, they haven't used Whiteside and Olenek together all that much. And, you know, with James Johnson's regression as a three-point shooter, you know, when you're a 29% shooter from three, you, that's not really a stretch four player, even if you're attempting, you know, at this stage, I think James Johnson's attempting about three per game. So you don't really have that type of player at the four spot to pull the other, you know, the other bigs out. I mean, Olenek is the closest thing that they have to it. And again, they haven't played, he hasn't played that many minutes with Whiteside. So and then there, you know, we, we talked about the redundancy in the backcourt. Now, some of that cleared itself up with Deion Waiters going out, you know, that, that you're able to sort of clear a path now for Ellington to get those consistent minutes and play down the stretch of games. So in some ways, that was kind of a blessing in disguise. But, you know, they still have a little bit of sort of overlap there with some of those positions. So I do think that, you know, again, the strength of this roster is is in its numbers and, and that Eric Spolster has a lot of playable guys on his team, um, whether they, you know, and you can say, well, that makes you really dangerous because you, you can play a lot of different combinations. But as you said, I don't know that a lot of the combinations uh, necessarily fit or click all that well. And sometimes that's just the case with a team. I mean, you take a look at the team in, in 2015, 2016, um, you know, that team looked on paper, you know, before the season, you looked at that team with, with Chris Bosch and, you know, playing uh, with, you know, next to Whiteside. And you said, oh, that'll work really well because Chris is a, a stretch player, a skilled player at the four spot. He'll get, he'll get out of Whiteside's way, allow Whiteside to operate when he gets some post touches. You had the well dang with more of a traditional, uh, traditional three, you know, it, with, uh, with Dwayne Wayne, you didn't have great shooting necessarily on that team other than Bosch, right? But you had, you know, and Dwayne with, with Dragic was a bit of a, uh, you know, that was a bit of a struggle to sort of make that thing work. But at least on paper, you know, it looked like that, you know, you had a player for every position who was, in a, you know, at least at four of the five spots was an above average player, you know, above, above average starter. And in Luol Deng's case was probably, you know, an average, you would consider an average starter at the three spot. Um, and yet that group, he just didn't work very well. Um, and then Chris got, you know, sick again and they moved Dang to the four and, and the pieces started to fit somewhat better. Bosch was always Deng, a five. And like uh, once, once the NBA changed, he was a five. He was a five and it just didn't work anymore with him as the four. So, you know, that's some, you just have some teams that are like that. And in this case, this team uh, is just like that in the sense that I, I don't know that they have a five man combination right. that you say, okay, this is a group that you can depend on at least offensively. You know, it's, it's, you know, other than the communication aspect of it, defensively, I think it's easier uh, to find groups that work together because, for the most part, you're concentrating on guarding your man, right? And and the Heat don't play zone, right? I think they've done right. it, right? I mean, I, I think I think they, they, they did it once. once. Yeah, yeah, they did yeah. it once this year with with injuries, but that was like a fly. That's like a of a flying saucer landed on the basketball court. Right. So they don't do that. So they're, they're pretty much playing uh, straight up, man. And of course, you've got to be able to communicate and play off, you know, switch off pick and rolls if that's that's the way you want to play it. But but I think defensively, you know, the type of athletes that the Heat have with Winslow and, you know, long arms with Winslow and with Richardson, it's easier to sort of get and Whiteside as an anchor and, you know, and, and Bam, the way that he's sort of developed on that end and, and been able to sort of get out to the perimeter um, on pick and rolls and on shooters. You know, they have a lot of pieces on that end of the floor and they don't all need to be necessarily uh, perfectly fitting pieces. But on offense, you need those pieces to fit. And, and it's just not the case with this roster. Right. And I think they have right now three, three fives and. Kelly Linick to me is miscast as a four on the defensive end of the floor, not as not on the offensive end. And then, uh, although I guess sort of a, there, you 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 lack for athleticism when you're playing Olenek as a four. And then Bam to me is miscast as a four on the offensive side. So if you play him with Whiteside, then that's just never going to work. And Whiteside's never playing anything but the five. But when you look at and, and to me this is maybe something that we can do uh, sort of as like one of these big picture pods. But there is a death of the power forward narrative to me that is kind of, you know, it just sort of happened. And I don't think we've kind of woken up from, oh, my God, the, the power forward's actually dead. So when you look at the top 11, uh, what ESPN lists is their power forwards uh, on, on their on their webpage, uh, seven of the top 11 average at least four three-point attempts a game. 
And, mm. and if we check that 20 years ago, I guarantee you that wasn't the case. But you look at Porzingis, Aaron Gordon, Kevin Love, Carmelo Anthony is listed as a four, by the way. I'm sure he would object to that. Uh, Kyle Kuzma, Laurie Markkinen, and, and Dario Saric. Those are players listed as power forwards, and they all take at least four threes a game. The guys that don't, Zach Randolph, who's a dinosaur. I don't think Zach. I don't think we see Zach Randolph again until there's a whole new NBA, uh, you know, sort of revolution again with the way the game is played. Lamarcus Aldridge is, a, is again similar kind of beast. We don't see Lamarcus Aldridge's anymore. And then Anthony Davis and Giannis, who are players listed as power forwards, but they have you know greater offensive skill sets than your traditional power forward. So the position is dead. But I guess. The, the problem is that right now the Heat have two guys to me that are candidates to be power forwards in that mold, and James Johnson and Justice Winslow. The problem with them is that they don't shoot like guys like Porzingis or Aaron Gordon or Kevin Love or, uh, or Carmelo or Kuzma or Markinen or Saric are shooting right now. They're, they all shoot at a relatively high percentage, somewhere around 30, somewhere between 35 and 41%. Uh, that's really solid, and, and on, a, on a minimum number of attempts that, that is representative, the Heat don't have that player, and so... Uh, the the wanting at that position, even with what James Johnson did last year, would be enough. But that that kind of redundancy of having too many fives and not having enough fours, and then too many kind of combo guardish kind of players, uh, I, I think it just leads to that offensive stagnation that we're seeing. Well, and the question becomes, Chris, and after we've gotten through the five reasons here, is this something that the Heat can overcome? with the current roster. I mean, right now they're fourth in the East. They, they should be third in the East, but they, they blew the game up in Cleveland. Um, we obviously know that the Cavaliers, you know, will still sort of, I think they'll hang in just because they have LeBron. And, and I, I don't think Isaiah Thomas can be this bad uh, going forward, but we'll see. But they don't have Kevin Love for the next uh, six to eight weeks or so. So, I mean, that's something that Cleveland has to find a way to consistently overcome. The Heat are not going to catch Boston or Toronto uh, for a one or two seed. But and, and, you know, there's always the, the risk of slipping further right. in the standings. There, there are three losses away from being out, out of the playoffs. So, and, and that starts tomorrow night when, they, when they're at Philly. So uh, there, there are teams that can catch them, too. Right. And, and, you know, Detroit just made a move for Blake Griffin. We have to see how that pans out. Washington has to overcome the John Wall absence. They won their first game without him, but I don't know that that's something that's going to be successful. You know, that they're going to be successful without him for the long term. So I I guess the question is, if the Heat don't make a trade before February 8th, and, and we've talked about some of the players that are out there, but the Heat really don't have a lot of assets to make a move for some of them. Um, you know, can they overcome this offense to still secure, you know, a reasonably good seed, whether it's, you know, three, four, five, maybe even six, uh, and potentially win a first-round series? I, my, my sort of indication would be uh, with the current roster, uh, they could win a first-round series, but it would have to be in the ugliest fashion possible. Right now it would be a 4-5 against Washington. I would say Washington, even with some of the struggles they have, uh, if they get healthy you know, with Wall, with Beal, and Otto Porter kind of at their best, to me, that front line talent is somewhere, is basically the antithesis of what the Heat uh, or what the Heat are in terms of having multiple creators and multiple offensive threats that that are sort of difficult to game plan for. They just don't have that right now. To me, if the contract situation was different, or if the Heat, you know, had first round picks to go and trade, and they wanted to go for it this season, the Lou Williams trade to me is the most obvious trade in the world. For them to go and get Lou Williams, you pair him with Dragic. He's an offensive creator who's having an all-star caliber season, frankly. Uh, and he would be the perfect kind of player, but he's on $7 million on an expiring deal. So the mm-hmm. only way that a team does that trade is if uh, you know, you're getting, a, a, an ex- particularly a team like the Clippers that are rebuilding, is if you get a contract that's, re- that's uh, expiring as well and a first-round pick. So... Unless the Heat are willing to throw Winslow in a trade for a one, you know, a two-month rental, I don't think they would do that. Like, I just don't think that the Heat can get that kind of mid-level player that's on an old salary, right? So, to me, mm-hmm. the old salary structure is the thing that sort of makes the the Heat in anachronistic uh, roster construction. Is there's no one that's on that sort of old system. Everyone's on a kind of new level market value contract, and that's why sometimes making trades is hard. And I think if the Heat were going for one of these rental players, and you could just offer you know a first round pick and an expiring, then maybe you do that. But the, but they just can't. They can't afford to do that with with the, the the first round picks they have committed to give up to Dragic. So I don't know who that rental player is. And I don't know that they'll be able to get a, a big-time scorer back uh, for Whiteside, with the exception, 
And again, if you decide you're going to move Whiteside and you're going to move forward with Bam and with Olenek, uh, with the exception potentially of Jabari Parker. I mean, that would be the one name out there, and, and he's making his debut, season debut this week. Milwaukee has a really difficult decision to make going forward because, and I read the Zach Lowe piece today where, you know, they sort of talk about the contracts that are coming due up there and what kind of team are they going to build? Are they going to be able to pay, uh, you know, that you know, they going to be able to pay Bledsoe and Middleton and Parker going forward along with Giannis? Can they keep that core together? Um, Jabari Parker, a guy who was, what, number two overall pick, in the draft um, has shown promise uh, obviously as a scorer improved as a three-point shooter before his most recent injury he was getting a little better from out there it was not something he sort of brought into the league but he, he progressed there um, now Jabari Parker you know he, it's interesting he, he might actually be if you acquired him he might instantly be the most skilled scorer that the Heat have on the roster um, I just don't know where his his game is going to be at this point after he's you know been out for such a long period of time. And, and again, it, he's ha- it's not the first time that he's had this particular injury. So that would be the one name out there um, that would, you know, give you something for the future. And, you know, again, that would in large part depend on whether the Heat thought he would be a core piece that they would want to retain. Yeah. And I think uh, the, the one thing that factors into that decision, again, is how capped out they are. Or are they in a position to go into the luxury tax, which is what you'd have to do to bring a player like him back? I don't think that he would do that. So it does kind of leave them in this situation where I do think they are pretty well committed to this team because uh, the only kind of tradable piece to me that they have that is sort of of, of a salary that you can match with is Olenek, and I think you'd want to keep him. So unless you're throwing Bam or Winslow in a trade, I think it's hard to really find that player, and I think – uh, given that the Heat probably know they're, you know, they're a negative point differential team, they're pretty bad at offense. I don't know if they're necessarily going to make that move to go in and and find that player to just to kind of make a deeper run in the playoffs. I don't think they're getting to the NBA Finals or anything. So I think they just kind of ride it out with what they have. Maybe make a couple of minor moves, but I, I don't think there's a big trade on for for Miami at the moment. All right. Well, this was the uh, seventh episode, second Heat episode we've done of the five reasons podcast again you can find us uh, hopefully uh you know you've it's been easy for you to find us already uh obviously you can find us on stitcher on itunes what else are we working on we're trying to get it on google we already have it on google yeah play, we have it correct? on google play we'll uh we'll include the links when we when we tweet it out on social and we're working on spotify spotify is the last one spotify's got into the podcast game and I, I know a lot of people use that so we'll uh we'll try and get on there soon All right, and uh, we will talk to you soon with another topic. And feel free, um, as you listen to the episodes, to comment on them and to suggest topics for the future because we're always looking for good things to talk about. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.